Okay, so this is our second week and really our first series of the new year on the seven signs and miracles that we find in the gospel of John. So this series right over the course, I think including this week, we have seven more weeks left in it. We're going to look at each one of these signs with the hope that it's going to reveal to us more and more who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do. So last week we started off in John's gospel, but because it was baptism of the Lord's Sunday, we didn't actually start our series with the first sign. Instead, we started it by looking at how John and his gospel tells the story of Jesus's baptism. And what we found is that in this gospel, in the gospel of John, we don't really focus on the actual narrative of the baptism. Instead, we look at what happened the next day and what it revealed to John the Baptist about who Jesus was. And what we saw was that it revealed to John the Baptist that Jesus is the Lamb of God. That was in John chapter 1. This week, we're going to be in John chapter 2, and we're going to look at the first of those seven signs that John's gospel shows us over the course of Jesus's ministry. And this sign, this miracle, is one of the most well-known stories in all of the gospel. In fact, I think it is probably one of the most referenced stories in all of scripture, especially within the life of Jesus. And it's the story of Jesus at the wedding at Cana. Let's read just the first few verses of it, and then we'll stop and talk a little bit about the context. So the whole story of Jesus at this wedding is chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. But at first, we're just going to read the first three verses. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. How many of you have heard this story before? I'm guessing a lot of you have, right? The more I studied this gospel for this series, the more fascinated I think I've become with it. This is really one of the first times I've done a true deep dive just in the gospel of John. And what I want to make sure we notice here is that this is a really interesting way for John, the writer of the gospel, for John to begin Jesus's public ministry. The gospel of John kind of flows like this up to the point where we find ourselves this morning. We have the baptism of Jesus that we covered last week, and then right after that, we have Jesus calling some of his first disciples to come and follow him. And then we have his first act of public ministry which in the Gospel of John, Jesus does at a wedding. Well, when we look at the other Gospels, this is pretty different than how Jesus' first act of ministry goes. Luke puts Jesus in a synagogue for his first act of ministry. So does Mark, where he heals a man of an unclean spirit. And Matthew has Jesus going all around Galilee, teaching in many different synagogues. But all three of the other gospel writers put Jesus in a very logical place, right, for his first act of public ministry. They put him in a place of worship in the synagogue. And here again, and I think you'll see this over and over again throughout this series, John is always going to be some sort of outlier with the way that he tells the story of Jesus. And Jesus' first act of public ministry is no different because John puts him at a wedding. 
I don't know what your experience of weddings are. I don't know how many you've attended or, you know, what they've been like. But mine, after officiating a few and attending quite a lot of them, is that if you're going to a wedding, it's a pretty safe bet that something is not going to go according to plan. Don't you think that's a pretty, like, generic thing that we can all agree on? Usually with weddings, something, maybe small, maybe big, but something is not going to go the way that we thought it was going to go. I think I've already told you the story where me and Madison were going to a wedding out of town, and we were staying at our lake house, and we woke up to get dressed for the wedding, and I realized a few hours out from the wedding, and it was about an hour and a half drive to the church, that I had forgotten a suit shirt, and instead I had brought a tuxedo shirt with, like, ruffles and all, and a little collar, and, like, didn't have buttons because you needed, you know, the little kit to make the shirt button up. So I ended up wearing an itchy, scratchy Walmart white button-up fresh out of the packaging to a wedding that we were almost late to. I mean, we just barely beat the wedding party in the back doors of the church. So I think I've already told you that. That's a great example of something not going according to plan at a wedding. There's the classic pouring down rain on your wedding day. Some couples would say that's good luck. Some couples would say that's bad luck. I'd say the majority of weddings that I have officiated, especially if they haven't been at a church, if they've been at some venue, I almost always have microphone issues. Always. Always. It feels like just this plague that follows me. The first wedding that I ever did was for one of my best friends, and he wanted me to be mic'd up. But the sound operator put the receiver way too far away from where I was standing. So the whole wedding, it was so painful. The whole wedding, my voice was just going in and out of the speakers. Another one, the sound engineer was late and he forgot to unmute my mic the whole time during the wedding. So my mic was on and we were making eye contact with each other, but he forgot to. So it's like, I just feel like it's this plague that follows me all throughout the weddings that I officiate in all these different barns and venues, right? Is that one thing I can always bank on is that my microphone isn't going to work the way that I want it to. Sometimes the caterer gets something wrong. Sometimes it's a, it's a mad dash to finish the flowers. Sometimes there's some family drama. I'm guessing that you can think of a wedding that you have attended or been a part of where something has not gone to plan. Usually something goes wrong. And at this wedding in Cana, they run out of wine. You know what I thought about when I read that? Somebody had one job. Somebody had one job. Some would say maybe the most important job for the party, right? One job to make sure that we had plenty of wine. And they didn't do it, did they? They didn't do it. The wedding at Cana, they ran out of wine. So I want you to know that in those days, a marriage was not celebrated with a honeymoon Instead, it was celebrated with a seven-day wedding feast at the house of the groom, which kind of expounds this issue, right, that they ran out of wine, because then you realize that this was a seven-day party, and it looks like on day three, they ran out of wine. So they're not even halfway through this wedding celebration, this seven-day party, and they've already run out of wine, which I think really would have been a pretty big deal, right? Because if you begin to think about this, the celebration would have probably included the whole village. So running out of wine at a party like this was a pretty big, a pretty big social disaster. And I'm betting that the bride and the groom probably would have thought that this meant bad luck 
for their relationship and for their family and for their marriage. But luckily, somebody noticed, didn't they? Somebody noticed that they had run out of wine. It's the mother of Jesus, Mary, who is never named in the Gospel of John. She shows up here at the wedding of Cana, and she shows up at the cross. But both times, she is only referred to as the mother of Jesus. The mother of Jesus realizes that the wine has run out. So she turns to her son, a pretty good connection in a moment like this, and says, son, they've run out of wine. Let's pick up at verse 4 and see what happens next. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each one holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw out some water and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee and revealed his glory and the disciples believed in him. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. And we say together, thanks be to God. What I realized the more in the weeds of this story that I got is that there's really no shortage of where you can take it. There was a lot of different angles that I could have preached on this morning. I felt like I had a ton of options. There were so many different rabbit holes that I could have jumped down when it came to this story. We could talk about how the wedding happens on the third day of the celebration and how Jesus is raised on the third day and how many believe those are some bookends that John places in his gospel. Jesus' first sign and Jesus' ultimate sign both happen on the third day. We could talk about how the first sign of Jesus occurs at a joyous celebration, celebrating the uniting of two families and two individuals living their life together, a time where family is celebrating the love between husband and wife. We could talk about the strange dialogue, right? Did you notice that strange dialogue between Jesus and Mary, where Mary tells Jesus that they've run out of wine, but Jesus' response is, it's not my time. What concern of that is, is, is it to you and to me? Basically, what Jesus tells her in that moment is, Mother, I'm pretty sure this isn't our problem. I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm, I, I don't need to worry about the fact that this party has just run out of wine. We could talk about that because we don't really see that dialogue pop up anywhere else in the Gospels. We could talk about the role of the servants, couldn't we? How the reason that this miracle happens is because the lowest people at the party fill up the jars with water. How the simplest of tasks are what leads to a miracle. We could talk about those jars, couldn't we? Did you notice that those, jo those jars were used for the Jewish rites of purification? They're massive. And just one full jar would have been plenty of water to purify everybody that was at that party. 
We could talk about the significance of Jesus finding them empty. And then after Jesus interferes, they're not just full, but they're full of good wine, full of new wine. How that could show us the abundant life of the new covenant and all the hope that Christ brings with him into our world. We could talk about the abundance that comes from Jesus, how Jesus doesn't make just barely enough wine to see the party through, does he? He fills up all six jars, which would have been 120 to 130 gallons of wine, an abundance of what is needed. Or we could talk about how Jesus serves the good wine last. What a surprise that was to the steward. How, how everybody usually serves the good wine first, but you serve the good wine last because nobody's going to be able to tell the difference and how we could see that as an illustration for the goodness of God and the resurrection that came last and, and how it could help us understand God's timing and work and movement in our lives, that we can always know the end of the story is going to be good and full of grace and full of hope. There's a lot here. There's a whole lot here in this story. And those are just a few of the things that I picked up on this week in my study. And I don't tell you all of that to try and overwhelm you, but I want to make sure you see just how rich this story is of Jesus's first sign. This first sign has so much packed into it that it really took me a little while to decipher all of that and work through it and decide where I thought we really needed to go with that story this week. But I think I figured it out. In the midst of all of those things, I found myself asking the same question in my head over and over again, and it's this. How was the water changed to wine? How did it happen? How, how was that possible? How did the water change into wine? What had to happen for that to become a possibility at this party? And the more I asked that question, the more drawn that I felt to the dynamic that we see between the servants and Mary and Jesus. And when I kept asking that question, I began to realize that all three of them seemed to have a part to play didn't they? All three of them had a part to play when you looked at the outcome of that water actually turning into wine. Mary and the servants had to do something really simple or ordinary, didn't they? And then Jesus does something sacred. Jesus does something extraordinary. If, so if, if, we, if we start with Jesus, right, if we start with Jesus's part in this narrative— then we can see clearly that, that nothing miraculous would have happened at this wedding without Jesus. If we play this out like Mary had been talking to someone else, she would have said the wine had run out. They might have had the same response at first, what, you know, it's not, it's not my problem. But if they ended up doing something about it, then they may have looked at the servants and handed them some money and said, go out and buy us more wine. But buy the cheap stuff, because nobody's going to know the difference. Without Jesus, more wine may have been supplied, but it would have been through some ordinary way. So what does the story reveal about Jesus? I think it reveals that it's, it's through him that transformation 
happens. I mean, think about this as the first act of Jesus's ministry and what sort of trajectory it sets up for Jesus to take. That through this Messiah, through this Savior, transformation is possible. That it's through him that miracles happen. That he has the power to create abundance from nothing. That what flows from Christ is good. And not only that, but there's plenty of it to go around. But I think looking at Jesus also reveals something else, and it's that this extraordinary act from Christ, this miraculous act from Christ, this miracle, it comes through several small, ordinary actions, doesn't it? Think about Mary. Mary sees a need. The wine has run out. She takes it to Jesus, and in the midst of doing that, she sees someone else. She sees the servants and is able to discern what their role should be in all of this. And she ends up empowering folks who otherwise may not have even been a part of the story, who may have been excluded, to be a part of what God was up to in that moment. And she does it all with one really simple phrase doesn't she? Do what he tells you. That's all she says to him. She just looks at the servants and says, do do whatever he tells you to do. If we look at the servant, we see that the servants look at Mary and say, okay, I'll, I'll do whatever he tells me. And then they look at Jesus and Jesus says, we'll take all of those jars, those massive jars and fill them all up with water, fill them up to the brim, which really wouldn't have made a whole lot of sense, right? Because remember, the party needed wine. The party didn't need water, but the servants do it anyway. And and then Jesus says, draw some water out of those jars and take it to the chief steward, which again, wouldn't have made a whole lot of sense, right? Because the chief steward wasn't asking for a cup of water, was he? He was asking for a cup of wine, but the servants do it anyway, I think what I realized is because Mary and because the servants do the simple act, I believe they're just as much of a vessel for the water turning into wine as Christ. The reason the water turns into wine is because somebody went and filled up the jars and somebody drew the water out and took it to the chief steward. Two ordinary people and some ordinary actions when coupled with Jesus lead to something miraculous, lead to something amazing, lead to something impossible. So what what are we supposed to do with that? What are we supposed to do with that? That two ordinary people doing a couple of ordinary things when coupled with Jesus lead to something miraculous. Here's where I landed this week, and here's, here's what I think we're supposed to do with this story. Here's what I think I'm supposed to do with this story. I think all of us need to do two things in response to this first sign, this first miracle that we see in the Gospel of John. I think we all need to find a Mary, and I think we all need to be a Mary. That's what I walked away with this story with. I think all of us need to find a Mary, and I think all of us need to be a Mary. What I mean by that is that I I think we all need to find a Mary. We need to find someone, someone that we trust, someone that we know has our best interest. 
to allow them to, to, to push us a little bit, to speak into our lives, to help us see God's call upon our lives in the seasons where we can't, we can't see it. Or maybe we can see it, but we're afraid or we're doubting what God is up to in our life. Because that's really all Mary does in the story, right? She sees a need, and then she sees someone that can fulfill that need in the kingdom. I wonder if there's someone in your life like Mary that's reminding you of where where your role is in the kingdom of God. And where they can see clearly that God is calling you to go and do and be a part of. I wonder if you have somebody in your life that's pushing you that knows your story and knows your struggles, just simply reminding you to do what Jesus tells you and to go where you feel and they can see that God is calling you to go. The only reason I'm in ministry is because of Mary's in my life. The only reason I made it this far in my own calling is because I was lucky enough to have many Marys placed over the course of my journey. I had people in my life that pushed me in seasons when I doubted my calling or was afraid of where God was leading me to go with my life or or, or seasons when I began to doubt my ability and really question if God had actually called me to go and be a pastor after all. From folks that poured into me in high school to people who shepherded me in college to those who walked with me in seminary, even to people here in in this conference in North Alabama that continue to empower me and build me up and remind me that God is still calling me to say yes to the next step that he has for me in my ministry. I'm here and I'm doing my best to live into my calling because of the Marys in my life. So I I think the first thing that that we need to do is we need to to be willing to find folks that we know, that we trust, that know our story and know our struggles and allow them to speak into our lives and help us discern where God may be calling us to go and be a part of something miraculous and something transformational. But we also need to be Marys. We need to find Marys, but I think we also need to, to, to be Marys. I think like Mary, we need to keep our eyes peeled for the needs around us. Where is the wine run out around you? Where are the people that are hungry? Where are the people that are, that are suffering? Where are the people that are thirsty? Where are people alone? Where are people looking for God? Where are people wandering? Where are people in pain? Where is that transformational presence of Jesus needed the most? And how can you be a part of empowering the right people to say yes to where God is calling them in their life, to partner with Christ and partner with the kingdom and do something miraculous? What can you see? What ordinary actions can you see need to happen for Jesus to burst forth into our world. Another way of putting this is this. I I think we need to find a mentor and I think we need to be a mentor. I really do. And like I said, there's a ton of different directions that we could have taken this story, but for some reason, that's where I felt like I needed to go with it this week. That I think we as a people of faith need that reminder that we need to find a mentor, someone that we allow to speak into our life. We also need to be a mentor 
and make sure that we're pouring into others to help them live up to where we feel like God is calling them and their ministry and their life. We need to find a Mary and be a Mary so that we, like the folks at that wedding, may be able to just catch a glimpse of the abundance and of the grace and of the love that's possible when we say yes to where we know God is calling us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey friends, I just wanted to take a moment and say thank you for tuning in to our message this week in the gathering. I hope you found it meaningful and life-giving. Of course, you're welcome to join us any week at 10 a.m. on Sundays, either here in this space or on our live stream for worship. And of course, you can check us out on our website at www.bluffparkumc.org to find out more about who we are as a church, what we have going on, and how you can be a part of that. Feel free to reach out and contact us with any questions or concerns you may have. We'd love to hear from you. We hope you have a great week, and we'll see you next time.